And let's give a warm welcome to the host of The H Spot, David Hirschkopf. Welcome, everyone. Very glad to welcome to the show, Philip Hirschkopf, self-styled a simple country lawyer, grew up in Heightstown, New Jersey, went into the Green Berets, Ivy League College, and then became one of the leading civil rights lawyers in the United States, famous for the loving story, the loving case, which changed mixed marriage laws in the United States. And then went on to some very colorful and some amazing legal victories and legal battles over the next decades. He will be happy to tell you about that, I am sure. Now, of course, his greatest accomplishment by far is that he's my father, but we can talk about that too if we need to. So thank you so much and, and welcome to the show. Good to be here. Good to see you. It's good to see you. So as a kid, would you say you were a troublemaker? Well, sort of. I, I had my own desk in the principal's office, in the anteroom, the final two years of school. Never got in fights or anything, but going to school in Brooklyn as a young kid, and then we moved to Heights, a small farming community in central New Jersey when I was eight years old. And uh, there were a lot of kids in the school who were not college bound or anything. And so I spent a lot of time correcting teachers and all, and I got in a lot of trouble over it. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure teachers but, love that. So if you could, share the pancake story. <laughs> in Heightstown, New Jersey, where I went, you got a day or two off a year to go to the state fair, and you got a day to help with farmers, and you got a day or two off to go hunting. And on the state fair day, we went to Trenton, friends and I went to the state fair, and it was a pancake eating contest. And I entered it, and I didn't realize it was for the next day. So the next day, instead of going to school, my friends went to school. I went back to Trenton and I ate 25 pancakes. I was a little skinny kid. And the two guys who came in first and second, I came in third. They were each over 300 pounds. And one went out and regurgitate midway through eating. And then it so affected me. I ended up with 104 fevers, something very sick. So I was out of school for two more days. And when I came in, I brought an excuse from my parents, gave it to the principal. He called me into the office. And he said, did I actually sign it or did my mother sign it? And I said, well, it's like Epstein's mother, the old program on TV. And it turns out there was an article on the front page of the uh, Trenton Times about high school student comes in third. And he had me in Trenton instead of so. At any rate, I had another 14 day suspension over that. <laughs> but overall, you felt good about the experience because you, you placed highly in the pancake eating? And the principal told me he's proud of me. I was not only smart, but I had a really good appetite. Yeah, that's right. That's what fueled all that brain activity, probably. So at the end of high school, because of you know, your sort of uh, extra energy you had, it sounds like you were recommended maybe to wait on college a little bit. So then you joined the Green Berets, right? Well, I had to go in the army. I couldn't get into college. The principal wouldn't sign anywhere. And he liked me. I got along with him fine. He, small country high school. He said, you need to straighten your life out. And uh, we were very poor people. I needed the GI Bill to go to college. So I went in the military and I ended up being a paratrooper. I'm terrified of height. I still am. But yeah, just sort of did it one day. I was kind of, I think I must have been drunk or something. So the Green Braves back then, I mean, you've told me before, they were kind of a rough crowd. It was sort of uh, the early days. Yeah, it's before the Navy had SEALs, and we were trained exclusively for guerrilla warfare and the type of things that SEALs would do more currently. I think I was the only draftee in the 77 Special Forces, which was the Green Bear unit in the United States. I think I was the only guy under six foot one. I'm, I'm only five foot nine. But I could fix a certain type of radio they really needed, so they took me in. I think you guys once 
you said you had an exercise where you had to kidnap a mayor or something? We took mountain survival in Camp Hale, Colorado, home of the 10th Mountain Division, which is a new, northern New York now. And we jumped in there as a world record altitude mass jump at around 15,000 feet into 14,000 foot, 13,000 foot above sea level. And we were living in snow caves and we learned to ski uphill. It was, it was a wonderful experience. We had to go kidnap a mayor like, you know, it was a guerrilla operation, but they forgot to tell the mayor we're going to be there. So we <laughs> come out underneath his porch with our little grease guns and our carbines that we used. Grabbed the poor guy. He ends up getting a heart attack and the U.S. ended up getting sued. But we successfully did the operation. Wow. I mean, it probably gives you a preview of something that could actually happen. But when you're in the military, I guess you had said that, you know, usually people progress and get upgraded or, or promotions. And I guess you had said that you actually got zero, that you sort of stayed where you were because I think you raced motorcycles or? It isn't quite the case. I went in the army as a private and I got out as a private. In between a couple of times I got the PFC. And they kept taking it away. I, I had trouble with authority in the army as I did in school. <laughs> but it was a great experience. I'm very proud of my army experience. Oh, it's an amazing experience. And so after the army, you had apparently matured enough because you, you went to Columbia University, studied civil engineering. You wrestled. I think you played soccer. You played the cello. And then... Was it during that time, I think you said, you actually got an invitation to try out for the Yankees? When I graduated high school, I got an invitation to try out for the Richmond Farm Club of the Yankees. I loved playing baseball in high school. And actually, I'm a graduate mechanical engineer. Yeah, it was, it was just a long time ago. So at the end of this mechanical engineering, why'd you go to law school? Purely serendipitous. I wasn't that taken with engineering. It just didn't interest me that much. It was too tedious for me. And the, all the tests were three hours. And I was walking across campus one day in my last year of school. I, I was on a combined program at Columbia. I went to Columbia College, where President Obama went. And then the Columbia School of Engineering. So I got my BA and then I was getting my Bachelor of Science for Chemical Engineering. I was walking across campus and I came across my advisor, Jim Shelton, who's a world-famous historian. He's gone now. And I'd never met him before. I'd, I'd had him in one class, history, and uh, I went up to him and introduced myself and told him, you know, he says, how come you never came to see me? I said, well, you know, the, most of the people around me are much younger and they're not military and they're not, you know, as mature or whatever, if I was at all mature then. But I didn't know what I was going to do with myself. He said, they're giving the law boards next week. Why don't you take them? I had absolutely no intent to be a lawyer. I, know, I hadn't thought about it. Took the law boards, I aced the law boards and decided I'd be a patent lawyer. Uh, so I went to night school at Georgetown Law School and I worked in the U.S. Patent Office during the day. So then how did you get involved in civil rights? Just about as serendipitous as I ended up being a lawyer. I was going to school one night and I ran into my con law professor. Uh, this is 1963. And that was the day that President Kennedy held a famous meeting at the White House with lawyers, African-American and white lawyers from the South, after the four girls were bombed and killed at the church in Alabama, to see if the lawyers could get together and try and work out a lot of the difficulties in, in civil rights. And it was a party that night. And anyhow, I ran with my con law professor on the street, and he invited me to this party. I didn't even think he knew my name. I, I sat in the back of the class. I read the paper. I never put my hand up. And I went to that meeting and I met a lawyer there, invited me to go to Danville, Virginia the next day where there were 
terrible beating, some of the worst mass beatings in history of the South. And I did, and I met Bill Kunzer and Arthur Kanoy, who became my mentors. And it was only two or three months later, I walked into my boss's office at the U.S. Patent Office and just said, I quit. This ain't what I want to do. Wow. My understanding of the civil rights movement is that, you know, starting mostly in the early 60s, people started standing up in the U.S. largely through protests for the rights of, you know, minorities and women who are actually the majority. And then that continued through the mid-70s and sort of has died down, but continued in some form even till the current day. Is that sort of what the civil rights movement was when people referred to it? Well, it's what we know from our exposure, but no, it was much, much more than that. I mean, it tied in many ways with the women's rights movements. You have to go back to suffragettes. It tied in many ways. The real birth of it was probably in the 20s, the 1920s, when all these segregation statutes and the Klan was passed and the Klan was at its most powerful and they really started taking over, try, almost tried to reestablish slavery in the United States. It was so outrageous. And places like Mississippi and Alabama, the deep southern states. And then the Second World War was a big turning point. There had been African-American troops in the First World War, but particularly in the Second World War, where they stood out and they got more integrated, not so much in the Navy, but much more in the Army. When those troops came back, they had earned the right the equals, which they had when they were born citizens of the United States, the equal treatment. They got up and they started demanding it more and more. And in the 50s, we saw horrendous things. So, you know, in 1963, of course, of the murder of Medgar Evers, a very famous civil rights leader. It's the same year that President Kennedy was assassinated. But the late 50s, we saw mass hangings, mass execution in Virginia for rape, the Martinsville Seven, a lot of the demonstrations, then the lovings, the uh, the mixed marriage couple were married and prosecuted in the late 50s. And we saw Brown v. Board of Education. And that was the turning point when the U.S. Supreme Court stood up and said, you have to integrate schools. You can't wait any longer. And that was a great Supreme Court. Uh, much of the civil rights progress in the United States is traceable to that court. As an attorney and other attorneys like you, like your role in the civil rights movement was a combination of trying cases, obviously, to get laws overturned, and then also sort of coordinating the permitting for protests and getting people back out of jail. Is that largely what lawyers did in the civil rights movement? No, you're combining, because I went on to become counsel to most of the major peace organizations during the war against Vietnam in Washington. That's why I would get the permits. I had my own police cruiser and mayor's command center pass. In the civil rights movement, there weren't a lot of permits. They wouldn't give them in the South for demonstrators. A lot of demonstrations by SNCC and these young people, they had been, uh, a lot of them came out of the Freedom Riders. And that's the history of the active civil rights movement. After Brown v. Board and the struggles about schools, the Freedom Riders came up late 50s, early 60s. It was horrendous treatment. They tried to murder busloads of people setting on fire and enormous courage going into the counters and refusing to move in North Carolina and Alabama. And the lawyers started representing them. And, and it was basically the demonstrators who would plan and put on demonstrations that differed from the peace movement that way. And there were only a handful of civil rights lawyers, per se. There was the African-American Corps of Civil Rights Lawyers, the lawyers native to the South, and they had tremendous support, principally 
from the Legal Defense Fund, from the NAACP and the NHB Legal Defense Fund, and then from the National Lawyers Guild, and other groups got involved. And at about that time, was, we're in the mid-60s, I just graduated law school. I helped found a group with other students when I went to Danville called the Law Student Civil Rights Research Council. So in 64, when I graduated law school, aside from getting into the Loving case that year, I was in Mississippi most of that summer supervising 100 law students who we had financed from the Law Students Council to clerk in all the major civil rights offices down there. And mostly what we did was represent people who were being attacked, who were being arrested, who were being otherwise prevented from exercising their rights. And, and you mentioned SNCC. Can you just tell people in case they don't know, what does SNCC stand for? Student Nonviolating Coordinating Committee. It was a, a wonderful organization. It grew in great part out of the Freedom Rides. John Lewis just passed away, was one of the leaders of SNCC. I actually represented at one point. I represented Rap Brown, who also had been a leader of SNCC when they tried extraditing him to Maryland for an alleged arson that never occurred there. But it was the group that did most of the really major demonstrating. I mean, there was also the SCLC, which was uh, Martin King's group. And they and SNCC didn't always see eye to eye because they were much more conservative in their approach and their demonstration. Hesitancy very often involved younger people. The Southern Christian Leadership Council, is that what it stood for? Conference. Yeah. Conference, sorry. Yeah, council. And so, I mean, what you're saying is even within the civil rights movement, there were different approaches and opinions of how to accomplish things, right? And a lot of strain between some of the groups, there was almost open warfare. I, it was a very difficult time. The uh, funding of, of these things was very important. Remember, we were going up against well-financed people on the other side. We'd get, be against attorney general's offices and large law firms that they brought in. You might find yourself with one assistant and no money and a, a little mimeograph machine. There were, there were no copy machines back then that you could use or... The modern things, the things we're talking over now, these kind of electronics. It was a different world. And at some point you had mentioned that you were in a house and the Ku Klux Klan was outside burning a cross on the lawn. I mean, that must have been obviously horrifying. But what happened? I was down in Eden, North Carolina. There was a wonderful civil rights leader down there, uh, Golden Franks, who refused to get off a bus before Rosa Parks did. It's an unknown story about Golden. And he got arrested for it and he got incarcerated. And Bill Kunstler asked me to go down there and see if I can get Golden out of jail. And I went down to visit with him. I got him out of jail and we went to a party and on the way home from this party, and it was just a few people there from the civil rights movement. He was an SCLC field coordinator for Martin King's group in North Carolina. We were followed by these cars and they were shooting up in the air. We went in his house and he had us go in the back room and actually get under some mattresses. And they put a cross in the front lawn, they lit it and shot into the house. Wow. I mean, was that common? Was that something that happened a lot? No. They were ever present. Not so much in North Carolina. It was, it was unusual in eastern North Carolina back then. But it, when I was in Mississippi, they never let you go out alone. You're always with someone else. I had met the three boys who were killed in Mississippi in 64. That was a horrible time. I was with Kunstler in Kanoi in New York. When they got a call from a relative of the sheriff and deputy sheriff who murdered these three boys or caused their murder and told us exactly what happened. 
where they were buried under the dam. And Arthur Knoy actually called up the FBI and reported the whole thing to them. They didn't really trust them because Arthur and Bill were with the National Lawyers Guild. And that was part of the politics of the civil rights movement. They were too liberal, too left-wing or whatever. And Bill Kunstler, as you mentioned, he actually was a good friend of yours. And he was, I mean, he's best known, I guess, for the Chicago 7 trial, right? Which also became a movie. Yes, best known or not, he was a great civil rights lawyer. He induced many people, and I don't include myself because he did induce me to get into civil rights, but many people who were well-known, very successful lawyers to become very active civil rights lawyers. He was a wonderful lawyer. He just didn't choose to practice law in a traditional way and sit in a law office and just deal with clients and run down to domestic relations cases or personal injury cases. And he accomplished enormous things in his lifetime. He was a brilliant guy. He was an author. He was a a scholar. He taught English. He taught law. He wrote 13 books. He was a known authority on Dylan Thomas. Right. And so I heard a story. I don't remember hearing it from you, but about during the protests, a congressman or congressperson showed up at a protest tent and asked everyone to leave or there was something strange that would happen. During the peace demonstrations, uh, one of the most famous period was in the autumn of 1969, the moratorium demonstration, and then the mobilization, which I think was probably until the Women's March in the last few years was the biggest demonstration I've had in D.C. It was massive. And that led to May Day when they, they were trying to shut D.C. down, these collective groups. What started that whole two weeks of demonstrations off was the March Against Death. And it was a single file march starting at the National Cemetery in Arlington, going across the bridge through streets in Washington, past the White House and to the Capitol. And at the beginning of the march near Arlington Cemetery, there was a big tent, which we had a permit for. And in the tent, there were placards with the name of the dead from Vietnam. So each placard had a name of one person. So if you're from Mississippi, you'd go get a name of a Mississippi person, you'd put it around your neck, you had a candle, and this single file line of candles went from Arlington Cemetery all the way to the Capitol all night long. Wow. It was thought of Staunton Lynn, the famous person from Yale, led the original march. Well, a long while, I was in my police cruiser because I had this police pass, and I, you know, to the mayor's command center, and I would meet with John Dean, negotiate the things he was counsel to the president. And I got a call that Sonny Montgomery from Mississippi, he's a very large man, he was a Mississippi congressman and uh, was in a tent seizing the placards from the Mississippi dead. I was on a radio that was given to us by the Secret Service so they could listen to what we were doing. I had a bunch of marshals working with me to help manage the demonstration, not working for me, but they were under me. None of us got paid. So I called the guy who was heading the tent and I said, just ignore my next call. I'm going to call you back. Now, I called him on a landline to tell him that so the government couldn't hear what I was doing. So I went back in the order I was in, and I called him again on this radio that John Dean had given me. And I said, look, give him 15 minutes, get out. If he doesn't, pick him up and throw him in the river. We have a permit, and you can eject him physically, and we're on the river. So we're going to throw his ass in the river. Well, the next thing I know, the guy sitting next to me, Ken Tapman, who was in the solicitor's office of the Department of Interior, he started getting calls on his secret phone from P-17. It was Park Service. 
P this, P that. Then it went to J5, who was the assistant attorney general for civil rights. Finally, J1, the attorney general himself called up. It was really crazy. And I, I had told Brad at the tent, it's all a big part. Don't put a hand on his congressman. The attorney general sent the park police and they all Sonny Montgomery out of the tent and let us get on with our demonstration. It was a clever ruse to sort of achieve it. I must have had too much to drink that evening. <laughs> I don't know. From my experience with you, being clever and smart is a, definitely a pattern that I saw. So the Loving case, amazing case. You referenced it earlier. In the 50s, it was Richard Loving, right? Right. And Mildred, what was Jeter. her last name? Jeter. Jeter. So he's a white man. She's a African-American woman in Virginia, fall in love, want to get married. In fact, they do get married, right? And then... Basically, he's put in jail or, or they're both put in jail. Police broke into their house at like one, two o'clock in the morning or later. And they were both sleeping in bed, put flashlights on him, took them both to jail, turned him loose in a couple of days. They made her stay in jail for a week or two. So what was the basic flow? I mean, did he spend long in jail? And then how did you get pulled into the case? And you got pulled into the case in 64. So it was many years later, a number of years later, right? Yeah, they were arrested in late 58. They had known each other in school. And, and that area of Virginia, there was a large mixture of the African-American population, the Native American population, that's Pocahontas country, and the white population. They all got along fine, but it was segregated. The schools were segregated. The sheriff, the judge, the deputies, they're all white people. You know, African-Americans didn't get any responsible jobs then. They were in love and they went to D.C. and got married, which was a felony under Virginia law to, to evade the Virginia ban on marriage by going somewhere else to it and coming back here to live. And they were taken to court. They pled guilty. They were given a year suspended on condition they leave the state, not return together. And that is banishment. And banishment is an illegal sentence under any laws. It violates due process. It's accepted across the board. You can't give out that sentence. But then there was the March on Washington in 1963 and all the publicity about it. And they were living in D.C. They hated it. They tried going back to Virginia once, got caught, almost went up on felonies for that. And so they wrote the attorney general of the United States, Bobby Kennedy, and he referred them to the American Civil Liberties Union. There was no ACIU in Virginia at that point. So they referred it to the D.C., District Columbia, a branch or affiliate of the ACIU. And they asked a young lawyer in Virginia to see if he can help her get the sentence reversed. He filed a one-page petition in 1963 and didn't go anywhere, and he had no background or experience with it. So the next year, 1964, is when they passed the Civil Rights Act. You know, it's Title VII, equal opportunity to go into restaurants and all equal accommodations. About three days after the act was passed, this is after Kennedy's assassination, President Johnson pushed it through. She wrote to the lawyer here and said, you know, what's happening with my case? He didn't know what to do. He wants to see his con law professor. And I was just graduated law school weeks before. I was talking to my con law professor, and he's one who got me into civil rights, invited me to the party the night the president of the meeting at the White House. I was introduced to this young lawyer, and he told me about it. I told him I'd try and help. I drafted up a lawsuit, a federal lawsuit on a plane going to Mississippi the next day. And I said, it was on yellow paper, handwritten. I sent it to him. And out of that, he asked me to join the firm. And I ended up basically taking over the Loving case. So was that sort of another instance where luck or happenstance was there and you acted upon it? 
I worked hard. The secret to most of my wins, and there have been a lot of them I'm proud to say, but it wasn't because I was smarter than the other lawyers in the courtroom with me, but I certainly worked harder than almost any one of them. I was always prepared. I always tried to get through what eventualities I can. Everything that happened to me is could have gone the other way. Getting into law, getting into civil rights. Now, I guess there's something in my background. Your grandparents, they were never social activists in any way. But my mother, she see a kid out in the street. He didn't look fed. She'd haul him into the house. She didn't care what color the child was or what religion or whatever. And so we'd have some very strange guests sometimes at <laughs> dinner. And my father, he was an illegal immigrant for 30 years, came here from England, jumped a ship in Boston Harbor from British Merchant Marine. So I'm very sensitive to the rights of immigrants. I have no greater right in this country than anybody crossing that southern border in Texas or California. And the country, my parents loved this country. They took them in. They gave them a life. My father came from a highly segregated area in London where Jews, your father was a tailor. You were going to be a tailor. There was very little breakout for those people. He had been born in Poland. And my mother lived in Brooklyn. She was born here. But her mother was an immigrant from Hungary. I've heard over the years, I mean, you've mentioned a lot of sort of, you know, right and wrong kind of statements. So do you think that part of what sort of underpinned what you did was you just have a very strong sense of right and wrong, sort of very black and white sense? Well, my father was that way. Everything was right or wrong to him. And as a lawyer, you learn to look more at the grace than anything else. You learn the law, which is really overjudged and over-admired, has nothing to do with justice. The law is just a way that keeps society going on an even keel. And although lawyers and judges try and pretend we're the arbiters of justice and you should respect us for it, the truth is we're nothing more than mediators so people don't want to shoot each other to settle their differences. They do it in courtrooms or mediations or elsewhere. That would seem like an improvement. Well, there's a lot of things we can do to improve the law. And the, the law itself has improved enormously from what it was when they wrote the Dred Scott opinion back during the Civil War times. African-Americans weren't people. But we've seen a lot of improvement in the Supreme Court, even with the conservative court, which I obviously don't agree with. Right. Getting back to the Loving case, what were the Lovings like? I mean, as people, did they stand out in some way or were they just regular sort of down-to-earth people? No, they had no desire to be heroes. They had no desire to bring a lawsuit. They had no desire to change the laws. They just wanted to be left alone. They wanted to live in southeastern Virginia near her parents, near his mother, near his family, near her family. They wanted the children to know their grandparents. They were just ordinary, nice people. He was very quiet. He said very little. Uh, he had no desire to be anywhere near a lawyer or a civil rights suit. They went to segregated schools down here in Caroline County where they lived. She was one of the sweetest people. You want to help her write to her. She was very quiet. She had a soft, soft voice. She was very bright. She did all the writing. She wrote to Attorney General and she wrote to the ACIU and she wrote a few letters went to me and my co-counsel. But two very nice people who just wanted to be left alone live in Virginia. Right. How does it work? You like watch the Ruth Bader Ginsburg movie. It sounded like getting to the Supreme Court of the United States 
you have to have a strategy because I think with her, you know, she was trying to, you know, obviously represent women's rights. So she brought a case that was against a man knowing that would get accepted and she could weave in the law that way. So like with the Lovings, was there sort of a strategy of how do we get this accepted by the Supreme Court to even hear it in the first place? It was a moving strategy and it really didn't get much strategy until we got to the Supreme Court. Much different than Ruth. Justice Ginsburg was an old friend of mine. We were on ACU National Board together for 20 years. I have a bunch of correspondence with her in some cases I handled. Another case I took to the Supreme Court while she was still teaching in Columbia that she offered to argue for me and right of pregnant teachers to teach past the fourth or fifth month of pregnancy. But in Loving, it started out as a simple appeal of a criminal case. Remember, there was a criminal conviction. And they had an illegal sentence. So the ACIU, with the young lawyer here, filed a petition to set aside the sentence. They weren't attacking the conviction. They just wanted the ability to live in Virginia. When I got involved, I realized that it was a big mistake to do it that way. If the sentence was set aside, the law in Virginia required they have a penitentiary sentence. They were given a jail sentence. A, they would have been sentenced to a penitentiary. B, the judge was a real racist who tried them. He, his opinion he wrote finally, when I got into it, was that God created the races of separate continents and but for interference, that's how it should remain. He'd give them five years in prison if we had to go back and then they might not be able to appeal because they had pled guilty. So I filed this federal lawsuit for a three judge federal court. They took jurisdiction and told us we had to go back and exhaust our appeals in the state court. So by then we got the judge in Caroline County to issue an opinion we appealed to the Virginia Supreme Court. We took that appeal to the United States Supreme Court. Once we got to the United States Supreme Court, then the ACLU stepped back in and said, wait a minute, you're only two years. I wasn't even eligible to argue in the US Supreme Court. You had to be out of law school three years. So I had to make a special motion for me to come in and make the lead argument in the case. And my co-counsel, he had never been in a court of appeals, never done a constitutional case or civil rights case. But I fought with them and said, no, he'll do fine. And he did do fine. We split the argument. I took the lead argument, equal protection. And it was a big fight among the lawyers or dispute on the loving side as to whether we should make it a due process, an equal protection appeal, or whether we should raise the illegal sentence. Number much more technical difficulties. So, I mean, obviously you won the case and that overturned the laws. I think you had said in 17 states, so people of different races could get married. If you won, does that mean that the approach was the, the best approach or looking at it now, would you have changed anything or done anything differently? No, I mean, we won and it was a massive victory, much more so than they reversed and said the laws were illegal. The US constitution is a written document that we all cherish and it grants us certain rights. So the first amendment rights, the First Amendment of the U.S. Constitution of free speech, freedom of religion, the Second Amendment rights about bearing weapons, and on and on. They're created by the Constitution. In Loving, as one of the few times Supreme Court said, there's nothing in this Constitution about marriage, as is on the Constitution about abortion, Roe v. Wade. But they said there are certain rights so fundamental to being born in a democratic society that they're not created by the Constitution, but they're protected by the Constitution. And Loving has three or four different major elements in its impact on the law. And that was the most important. And that's when I fought the equal protection argument. That's what we got from it. You know, in more recent days, I mean, they obviously in a movie, The Loving Story, 
How accurate do you think the loving story was? And, you know, sort of what did they get right? And maybe where did they fill in? I'm very fond of the third movie. There were three movies made. None of them are highly accurate in detail. The most, the loving story, which is the middle movie, the producers did an excellent job of running down old film. I'd remembered someone that I'd arranged them, get interviews with Loving, and then it was a Life magazine photographer. I had stills going back 40 or 50 years. But, you know, in terms of what the lawyers did and the conversation between the lawyers and the clients, those were all conjured up to fit into the story. The overwhelming story was correct. And the main impact of the movie was completely correct in that it went to people and said, you might not have realized that this existed. It's amazing that after the Loving case, how easily mixed marriages were accepted in the society. Right. A couple of themes sort of came up. There's sort of the, you don't like to listen to authority. So obviously, you know, you question authority to the great benefit of many people. And then the sort of luck theme. So, uh, or happenstance. I mean, is your opinion that, you know, the happenstance that happened to you and to people like you is because, you know, you're more open-minded or because the work and preparation you do makes you more likely to receive that. And once things come your way, you're better at spotting what is an opportunity and you're more willing to take chances and actually, you know, step forward and follow through. Yes, me to talk about myself. That one's hard. Being open-minded is the first thing. The law is a very hidebound profession. We have what we call stare decisis. You base opinions on what happened before. So most lawyers handling cases, they'll look to the prior cases along the same line. They'll take the pleadings. They'll copy the pleadings. I mean, plagiarism is a way of practicing. You virtually couldn't do it economically if you didn't do it that way. And to come into the law and say, wait, I don't accept that. I taught constitutional litigation at Georgetown. It's the largest law school in the country. And for several years, soon after I graduated, and I always did that with the students. I'd give them a hypothetical case based on a real case, you know. Rap Brown was arrested in Virginia. He's being extradited to Maryland. But not I did this or I did that. I hate when lawyers do that. And I'd say, what would you do? I want an answer, not just what will you file in the law, but how will you deal with the finances? How will you deal with the clients? How will you deal with being oppressed and chased by the local police if you're in some of these other places that were horrendous? So the first thing is the open-mindedness. The second thing is just a work ethic. It, there's no way you do it without that. As, but all these things I've told you about that are happenstance and serendipitous, nonetheless, if I wasn't so dedicated to work and I hadn't been given the principles my parents gave me, I wouldn't have taken them up on the offer. I wouldn't have seized the offer. So when I met my professor that day and Bernie Cohen came in, the lawyer had a loving case, I could have just walked away and said, gee, it sounds awful interesting and sent him a copy of some papers. I just got into it. It seemed like the right thing to do. But it wasn't any plan. It wasn't any, hey, I'm going to be this. I'm going to be a civil rights lawyer. Just someone would show up and knock on I just didn't know how to say no, I guess. What got me in the most trouble is the word okay. I'm jammed up. Can you give me a little hand? I'd say okay. And my partners were looking at me like I was crazy. My assistants were like I was crazy. But somehow it all worked out. So was there some sort of underlying instinct or desire just to help people? I guess, you know, I don't know. There are some things that are very bitter memories. There are some things that are marvelous memories. Some things I wish I'd have done differently. By and large, it all worked out okay. And I mean, if you're any 
example. I must have done something right. If I'm any example, it shows insanity runs in the family. <laughs> and that's going to do it for part one of this exclusive interview with Philip Hirschkopf. You've been listening to The H-Spot on the Funnel Radio channel. Never miss an episode. Be sure to subscribe at thehspotpodcast.com.